You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Paul is going for the jugular here in Romans 3, 9 through 20, saying that everyone is under the power of sin. Apart from Christ, every person is guilty and condemned in sin. It's a universal truth. Therefore, no person, no, not one, can be right with God unless Jesus saves them. So please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. This is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. The question has been asked for years Are people fundamentally good or bad? Whether we have a basically good nature corrupted by society or a basically bad nature held in check by society. Some people think that man is basically good. As one put it, man has a spark of benevolence inside waiting to be fanned into a roaring flame of goodness. Man always thinks better of himself than he ought to think, and here are some samples. One person said, all the goodness we are capable of is already in us, but it's up to us to tap into it and use it rather than choose the alternative. Another person said, all human beings are born innocent. Unless they commit sin, they are naturally very good. Another person said, humans are at the core good, unless situations reprogram them to lose the core 
and replace the love with something not love. Another person said, most people are basically good, but every now and then you run across an evil human. A 2012 article in Scientific American boldly declared, and here was the headline, scientists probe human nature and discover we are good after all. Studies find our first impulses are selfless, they said. Walt Disney believed man is innately good, that he's moral, a sentiment ingrained in the minds of many Disney movie enthusiasts. We all have goodness in us. The choice to use it or not becomes the struggle. Philosophers such as Rousseau argued that people are born good, instinctively concerned with the welfare of others. L. Ron Hubbard, in a 1980 article, Ethics, Justice, and Dynamics, stated, Years ago, I discovered and proved that man is basically good. This means that the basic personality and the basic intentions of the individual toward himself and others are good. You look around, and you see little to substantiate that claim. Contradicted by evidence all around, the all-too-familiar wars and terrorism and suffering and pain and misery and heartache. Some insist, though, that man is neutral, not having a natural bent toward good or evil. Behaviorist B.F. Skinner said, man is a creature of circumstance, controlled, molded by external influences, and society is to be blamed for man's evil. What most people do is they simply weigh what they see as man's good and bad, and they shrug their shoulders and conclude that few are truly evil, most are better than worse, and for the most part, we're not all that bad. Oh, yes, we are. The evil in society originates in the people who make it up. Solomon in Proverbs 16, verse 2, says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Proverbs 20, verse 6, Men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. We puff ourselves up. We point out the, the supposed good that we do that outweighs the bad and we ignore the bad. Psalm 36, verse 2 says, we flatter ourselves in our own eyes. Proverbs 21, verse 2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord weighs the hearts. The main point of Romans 3, verses 9 through 20 is that all people are absolutely sinful. They're essentially aware of their sin and ultimately accountable to God. All people are absolutely sinful. They're depraved. Uh, they are essentially aware of their sin and ultimately accountable to God. And Paul is, is wrapping up this argument in Romans 3 with a sweeping indictment. All people are guilty before God. After answering every objection, he is now cutting off every remaining escape route. With a huge conclusion regarding universal guilt, that mankind is helpless and hopeless without Christ, that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin's power, which you see in verse 9, and are incapable of rescuing themselves. What he is doing is he is paving the way for the good news of redemption through Christ. We're going to see that next week. 
in verses 21 to 26. Paul here is making three basic statements which form our outline. Verses 9 through 18, the statement that all are absolutely sinful. Verse 19, that all are accountable to God. And verse 20, all are aware of their sin. All are absolutely sinful, all are accountable to God, and all are aware of their sin. The first point is that we are all absolutely sinful. You see this in verses 9 through 18. There's a universal indictment and condemnation. None is righteous, no, not one. And Paul, under this heading that all are sinful, has three segments, really. Verses 10 through 12, he's going to tell us that our hearts are totally sinful. In verses 13 and 14, we're going to see that our words are totally sinful. And verses uh, 15 to 18, that our deeds are totally sinful. Start at verse 9. He asks the question, what then are we Jews any better off? He answers very quickly, no, not at all. We've already charged that all are under sin. He says, I've already been over this. I just made this point. When did he make it? He charged the Gentiles with being under sin in chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32. Charges the Jews with being under sin in chapter 2, verses 1 through 29. He has made the point that everyone is under sin's power, and that literally means that they're under God's just wrath for their sin. They're unable to save themselves. Verse 10, he says, as it is written. And so here is Paul saying, everything I have said, now I'm going to back it up with the very word of God. He is going to quote the Old Testament. He is going to show what God says about it, what God says about us. The phrase, as it is written, stresses the permanent authoritative nature of what was written. This is the word of God. He quotes Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. He quotes Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3 as well. And he's basically saying you've got evil thoughts, you've got murderous words, you've got destructive actions. You've got evil thoughts. None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. We are, we're ignorant. We can't comprehend truth. It's like talking theology with my dog, Leela. No one seeks for God. Seek here means worship with a humble heart as God has revealed himself in his word, that you want to, to worship God with all your heart. And he says, no one does that. No one seeks for God. There are no seekers Churches build their whole deal around trying to reach seekers. You are fooling yourself if you think there are seekers. Jesus seeks and saves those who are lost. People don't seek for him. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Literally, they all have turned away from God. Together they have become worthless, literally useless The Hebrew word there means to go bad or turn sour. It was used of spoiled milk. Like if you find some spoiled milk in your refrigerator, you don't take it out of the refrigerator, set it on the counter and say, I'll come back in two weeks and drink the whole thing. I'll chug it all down. You throw it away. It is useless. It is worthless. No one does good. Goodness in the sense of usefulness. 
Not even one. So you're not going to be able to count up all your good, supposedly good actions and go get an exemption. You know, laminate your card and say, I've got an exemption. I'm good. No, no one does good. Not even one. Jesus says God sees the heart. Our hearts are polluted at the source, like a poisoned well. And aren't you glad that no one but you and God can see and, and hear the things that are in your heart? Aren't you glad that we don't have an app where you can kind of figure out what the person next to you is really thinking? Aren't you glad that only God knows? No one does good. That's kind of interesting. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10 says there will be glory and honor and peace for those who do good. Chapter 3, verse 12 tells us, though, no one does good. Chapter 2 speaks of the one who is good only in Christ. Chapter 3 tells you how to get there, like a good road sign. No one does good. And, and we have murderous words. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. Quoting Psalm 5, verse 9, no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, and their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. If you've been to a funeral recently, uh, and you're there at the grave site, and they're putting the casket inside the grave, can you imagine if they said, we're not going to do a casket, we're just going to put the body inside the grave? You wouldn't be able to stay there very long because it's going to get putrid, it's going to... It's going to uh, have a stench. Well, our mouths are open graves. They kill. They're putrid. We kill people with our words. They use their tongues to deceive. Practice deceit. Smooth words, falsehood, flattery, lies. Great word picture here. The venom of asps is under their lips. He's quoting Psalm 140, verse 3. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's. Under their lips is the venom of asps. Venom of, of a snake. An asp. That snake had a, a bag of poison underneath its tongue. Uh, that's the way God made it. And it would cock its head back and to, to strike. And the fangs would drop down. And one of the fangs would inject venom into the victim. We have smooth tongues with poison underneath. Verse 14 says, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Quoting Psalm 10, verse 7, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. So our words are like drawn swords. We're always fighting. We're always battling we're kind to people's faces, and then we talk behind their backs. We're hateful. We're complaining. We let secrets out. We destroy lives. We praise people to their face and curse them to their back. And not only that, not only are our hearts totally sinful and our words are sinful, we have destructive actions. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Proverbs 1.16 says their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Verse 16, in their paths are ruin. 
literally destruction, uh, fracture. We're fracturing people as we go through life. We're fracturing relationships. And there's misery. The verse 17, in the way of peace they have not known. We're always warring. It's a 15-rounder with anyone in our way. Uh, we sin like breaking world records. You get your PR in sin often, a personal record, a personal best, your personal worst, and you can do worse. Think with me about human peace treaties. No human peace treaty has ever been held to long term. We say peace, peace, yet there is no peace. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, on 1918, the guns finally went silent. The end of World War I came about after much blood and carnage and death. 20 million deaths to be exact, 9 to 11 million troops and the rest civilians. And there was widespread destruction in Europe and the, the Versailles Peace Treaty was put in place. It gave way to an even bloodier World War II. And the list of wars goes on. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the one in his heart, the wicked, deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, Paul probably quoted this whole string of Old Testament quotes by memory. Their habit was to group verses together, proving biblical doctrines, and here the doctrine of human depravity is being proven quite easily. There are two main focuses here in this use of the, of the Old Testament. First, a clear testimony of the universality of sin. All people are under its power and its penalty, not even one person exempt. And second, the intensity of sin, total depravity being exposed we're not utterly depraved where we're as bad as we could be. We're totally depraved. We're bad enough to be sent to hell, but we can get worse. That all parts of human life and words and works are affected by sin, and humans are completely infected with sin. We catch a clue to the cause in the quote from Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Think how often you compare yourself with other people. And you look around and you say, I'm not as bad as them, or I'm better than them. So we compare ourselves to others, but what Paul does is he brings us literally up to God so we see ourselves in light of him. There's a simple definition of character. It's doing what is right when nobody but God is looking. There is no fear before the throne of God. The king of glory who is to be feared is not feared and fear here is a word related to unbelief. Paul's indictment is in harmony with the biblical teaching on the nature of sin. Sin is unbelief, which shows itself in rebelliousness against God, which leads to immorality. Augustine's doctrine of original sin says that all people are born broken and selfish, saved only through God's intervention. That's hard for people to get their, their minds around, their arms around. It's like hugging a whale. We don't grasp it. And it's much easier for us to call out resident evil when it isn't us that's being called out. 
So let's use Charles Manson as an example, shall we? Charles Manson, he died of natural causes last Sunday at age 83. He was serving multiple life sentences at Corcoran State Prison. If you're not familiar with who he was, he was the wild-eyed leader of a cult family who killed seven people in a bloody rampage in 1969 in Los Angeles. It shocked the nation. And here's the sad part. We're no longer shocked. Oh, only seven? That's not that big of a deal. Oh, yes, it is. Geraldo Rivera despised him, called him a murderous scum. He wrote an article about him this week, and the headline read this, Manson goes to hell. And then he said, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Geraldo says, I feel no mercy for the lowlife whose enduringly perverse popularity was testimony to something dark in America's psyche. His twisted soul shined through that hateful swastika tattoo carved on his forehead between those glaring, piercing, beady eyes. Manson once said in a televised interview in 1988 with Geraldo inside San Quentin that he could solve overpopulation of the world if he could just kill 50 million of us. Geraldo said, despite his brutal crimes and unrepentant attitude, his face adorned some of America's best-selling t-shirts. He was an articulate, echo-friendly, homicidal maniac, part Jim Jones, part Adolf Hitler. Well, that's a little easier to get our arms around the idea of evil when you think about Manson, right? Vincent Bugliosi uh, prosecuted the Manson case. He wrote the book Helter Skelter about the killings, and he said... The very name Manson became a metaphor for evil. It represents the dark and malignant side of humanity. For whatever reason, there is a side of human nature fascinated by pure, unalloyed evil. John Moody wrote an article about Manson this week, and he said this, No one will miss Charlie Manson as his body rots on his route to hell. And then he said this, Goodness, faith in God, and hard work were all missing in Manson's DNA, but not in ours. Moody said that. Goodness, faith in God, and hard work were all missing in Manson's DNA, but not in ours. Moody is sadly mistaken on that last part. Every part of us is infected by sin. The world is full of sinful people. Terrorists and murderers and millions of maniacs, thieves and liars and gossips and gluttons and idolaters. You pick your poison. Unspeakable things being perpetrated. But we have this selective, twisted morality where certain sins are called out and others are embraced and celebrated. What's going on? The sin collective, and their names haunt us, Manson, Hitler, McVeigh, Dahmer, and, and the like. We need to add our names to the list. Smith and Jones and Johnson and Jenkins and Shara. You need to add your name to that list. Society sees humans as basically good, not evil. 
Deception drives such thinking. God's revelation in his word blasts that lie out of the water. And we are not as bad as we could be. We could be worse, but we're bad enough to be sent to hell. We are absolutely sinful. Depraved in mind and word and deed, not better, just, just as bad or worse. As these verses tell us, our throats, our tongue, our lips, our mouth, our eyes, every aspect of our character and our communication is tainted and totally deviant. Which leads us to verse 19, which tells us, we are all accountable to God. The universal silence and accountability before a holy God, verse 19, now, now we know. Now, in verse 19, is transitional. Paul is uh, moving to the conclusion of the section, the application of the Old Testament teaching regarding the guilt and power of sin to the whole world. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. The law here refers to the entire Old Testament. The verses from Psalms and Isaiah and Proverbs apply to the whole world. All are guilty before God. The ones who have the word of God and the ones that have the law of God written on their hearts and they know by their conscience between right and wrong. They know. We know. And so he says that every mouth will be stopped. We'll close our mouths and say nothing. We'll remain silent that the whole world, including us, may be held accountable to God. That word held accountable, it means to, to answer to, to bring under the recognition of judgment. It means that we're liable to punishment. We're going to stand together, condemned, and hang our heads in shame. Reminds me of a Johnny Cash song, I Hung My Head, about a, uh, a man who was sitting on a hill one day, and he was looking into the valley, and he saw a lone rider, and he put a bead on the rider with his rifle, and his finger accidentally hit the trigger, and he killed the rider, and before the judge, he says he hung his head in shame. I hung my head, and that's what we'll do. It's interesting that Israel as a nation was a sample of the human race, and after testing was found wanting. Here was a choice section of the human race used as a testing unit, receiving every conceivable blessing from God beyond what the entire world was given and still found guilty. So you conclude from that that the whole world is under the judgment of God. Verse 19, God's word represents the holiness of God, bringing to the human heart such a sense of sin and guilt that the mouth is stopped and all hope of righteousness flees. Jesus spoke of the self-righteous, declaring in Luke 5 that it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick that I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he said. We need to abandon all trust in ourselves to be right with God. No amount of your works will avail at the judgment. You will be silent, you will answer when asked. God is going to judge. All the world will be silent before him. This world that is in constant uproar and confusion. This world that is dressing depravity up and despondency up like lipstick on a pig. This guarantees that no one will claim innocence on the day of judgment. We are all accountable to God. And maybe the most shocking point of all is in verse 20. 
we are all aware of our sin. Every person. Before I became a believer, if you would have come up to me and said, you know, God loves you and had a wonderful, has a wonderful plan for your life and all that, and then said to me, you're a sinner, I would have said, how dare you call me a sinner? But I knew doubt deep in my heart. I knew something was wrong. Verse 24, which is therefore, which means because of or since, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. It indicates it's never going to happen. The verdict will always come back the same because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gives imperatives. God gives laws. But it doesn't imply ability on our part. God's imperatives do not mean that you have it within yourself to fulfill his commands. God drives you to the law in order to reveal your inability. That's what Galatians tells us. The law drives us to Christ. It's a tutor. It tells us our need of Christ. Martin Luther said, human nature is so blind that it does not know its own diseases and so proud as to imagine that it knows and can do everything. And for this pride and blindness, God has no readier remedy than the propounding of his law. So the opposite of proving man's freedom, the law and God's imperatives expose your corruption and captivity to sin. Precepts are not promises. God may command you to not have any other gods before him or not commit adultery, but those commands will not guarantee that you will keep his commands or break his precepts. It does not guarantee that you have the ability to keep those commands. So held up against the law, man's inability is absolutely obvious. And this is where the gospel shines the brightest as man's only hope. Don't turn the law into gospel. Don't turn the gospel into law. Understand the law as law. It prepares you for the gospel. It, it makes your sinfulness obvious to you. It brings you low. It tells you about yourself to prepare you to hear of God's grace and to drive you to Christ for salvation. If the law showed you your spiritual ability rather than your captivity to sin, the law would not lead you to the gospel and God's grace, it would lead you back to yourself as the source of righteousness. The law exposes your captivity and depravity so that you must depend entirely on what Christ has done for you and realize that your reliance must be on the Holy Spirit's gifts of new birth and faith and repentance. No one can say, you know, I got there, I've arrived. If you're there, you're not breathing. If you're there, you're burning. According to verse 20, justification must come outside of us and we become aware of sin by the law even though we try hard to deal with our sin, even though we try to explain our sin away, it's human nature to do that. 
If you read Romans 1, verse 18, through Romans 3, verse 20, and you say, that's not me. I don't approve of evil. Thank God I'm not like them. You're the Pharisee of Luke chapter 18. Or you're like David when Nathan came to him after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he told him a story about a guy who steals a little lamb and David just erupts and says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan points to David and says, you're the man. That's you and me. So the next time you're tempted to feel pride about your falsely presumed goodness or even on the other end of the spectrum, de despair of your sin, just remember that there is no way you can work your way to God. Do you know who gets downcast over these verses the most? Real believers. You can't go around, if you're a believer, you can't go around and say, you know, I had a sinless week. You can't even go around saying, I had a sinless week. I sinned less this week. Hooray for me. You just thank God for being beloved in Christ and forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ. There are three kinds of people responses to this passage of Scripture. There's the person that says, that's not me. That's not me. There's the person that says, that might be me. That might be me. Well, there's the person that says, that was me. If you're a believer today, you can say, that was me. But you can't say you're not a sinner. And you can't say you aren't depraved. And you can't say you aren't hopeless apart from Christ. And you can't say you're not lost without Christ. If you're a believer, you can't say you don't struggle with sin. If you say, that's not me, you need to believe the gospel. Because the only safety is believing the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, where you believe that Jesus died in your place as your substitute at the cross, and he was buried, and he was risen from the dead. And he is coming back for all those who believe. If you say, maybe that's me, then turn from your sin to Christ right now. Don't wait. Don't, don't put that off. The point to which Paul has been building is that there is no way to save yourself. You are only saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that unconverted human will will do exactly what it most desires, and it's most desirous of sin. 2 Timothy 2.26 says every person is under the power of the God of this world, Satan. He holds them captive to do his will. We're hopeless apart from Christ. The human will is enslaved to sin. We are spiritually unable in matters of salvation prior to the Holy Spirit's working new birth and conversion into one's life. You say that was me? then rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Don't be paralyzed by your sinfulness. Know that God has quickened you. That's the old-fashioned word of saying he made me alive by grace. 
that you can look to Christ who, Luke 18 says, is the stronger one, stronger than the devil. He overcomes the devil. And you have, in Christ, been transferred from one slavery to another. That slavery to Christ is actually royal freedom where you can actually do what God wants you to do in the power of the Spirit. If you're a believer today, let the ongoing knowledge of your sinfulness drive you to extreme humility and hope and thankfulness. Rejoicing in hope, not a false hope, but a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, love Jesus and hate your sin. Persevere strongly. Don't snooze on sanctification. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. If you're a believer today, seek to bless people immensely and not curse them in thought and word and deed. When you find yourself cursing people in thought and word and deed, confess your sins to God. If you're a believer today, cling unwaveringly to God and his word. Paul is saying, this is what God's word says about us. And our flesh always wants to redefine sin and what it is. But we must cherish the word of God more than sin. At the end of the day, it is about the authority and sufficiency of scripture. It is about the fact that scripture is binding on our consciences, the scripture that, that stands forever. See, in Christ, uh, there is righteousness, not condemnation. There is hope, not despair. There is joy, not misery. Romans 3, 9 through 20 pictures the person outside of Christ. Absolutely depraved in thought, word, and deed. Ultimately accountable to God and essentially aware of their sin. All people are absolutely sinful. Essentially aware of their sin and ultimately accountable to God. Now, why would the Holy Spirit have Paul prove a point that everyone knows? First, because everyone knows it, yet denies it and tries to fix it on their own. It's like guys without instructions, guys without maps, getting lost, breaking things. Secondly, it drives you to the brink. It drives you to the edge of the cliff with no way out. It's like the Egyptians chasing and the uncrossable Red Sea looming. And third, it leads you to the gospel as the only answer. We will see it in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, the most beautiful words in God's word. The best water I ever tasted came after hiking to the point of exhaustion in New Guinea. Best words you'll ever hear come after realizing how sinful you are. We are absolutely sinful. And, and here is some very clear teaching on human depravity we're straight from the word of God in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, scripture interpreting scripture. Paul bluntly blurts it out. There is no one righteous. Everyone's sick. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone needs the great physician Jesus. It is wrong to, de to deny depravity in hell and play up man's goodness? Your stance should be scripture says it, therefore I believe it. The natural man is hostile to God and the gospel, living by himself and for himself. Once God out of his way is self-determined, which leads to depression and despair and false hope and a false life. 
We sin like breaking world records. We get that personal best, our personal worst, and we sink lower. And we are ultimately accountable to God. Ronald Reagan said we must reject the idea that every time a law is broken, society is guilty rather than the lawbreaker. It's time to restore the American precept that each individual is accountable for his actions. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's time to restore the biblical truth that everyone must answer to God. And we're going to answer to the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote in 1758, the great Christian doctrine of original sin defended. And he said this, if the case be such indeed that all mankind are by nature in a state of total ruin, then doubtless the great salvation by Christ stands in direct relation to this ruin as the remedy to the disease. So here you see the ultimate downer leading to the ultimate upper. We are dead in sin, we're condemned, we're indicted, and we are on the brink of the best news that any human has ever heard. The bad news was delivered, the good news can now be seen in all its glory and be applied to the wound. We're painfully aware. We are painfully aware. We all know we're guilty. Let guilt drive you to Christ. Proof of your guilt in sin are your feelings of guilt. You feel guilty because you are guilty. Everyone knows something is wrong. You blame whoever or whatever you want, it doesn't go away. You feel guilt about things you did that you know are wrong, also about the kind of person you are on the inside where no one else but God can see. Ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said every guilty person is his own hangman. No matter how often you tell yourself that you are good, you cannot keep thinking and saying and doing wrong things. You can't help it. You keep doing it. And then you feel guilty about it. It is normal to want to get rid of feelings of guilt. But no one knows how. The harder you try, the more guilty you feel. It's like having super glue all over your hands. Only way to get it off is removing the skin, too. Feeling guilty is a symptom of the real problem, which is sin. All self-effort is a superficial, temporary fix. It's painkillers masking the pain. So unless your sin is removed, your guilt remains. It's why the first part of the good news is telling people the bad news. The gospel begins by declaring that all people are fundamentally sinful and their greatest need is to have their sin removed through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guilt will ruin you. Allow Jesus to rescue you. You know what's happened here in these verses? We've all been Roman freed by God. Treed by the hound of heaven. And there's no shower, no bath, no cleansing that can take away a single bit of your sin. Except as the old song goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And Lord, we thank you that that 
is true. Thank you, Lord, that you give us knowledge of sin. And thank you, Lord, for the gospel truth that sets us free. Thank you for what Jesus has done at the cross. May you be honored in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.